Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer. There's a shorter produced version of this at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. This is Robin. Oh, hi, Robin. It's Krista Tippett. Hi, Krista. So nice to meet you, even <laughs> over the airwaves. <laughs> you too. Um, are we? I'm just looking behind the glass. Chris, do you want me to? Let me ask you a. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. Let me just ask you to get some levels. Tell me something mundane like what you had for breakfast. <laughs> I had raspberries frozen from my garden this morning oh, nice. and granola yeah. and yogurt. There you go. Is that what you need? Oh, that sounds great. Sound good? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Chris, do you need more? They like Maybe. it here too. So. Okay. Okay. Let's do lunch too. What you have for lunch? <laughs> Spinach salad. Okay. <laughs> Eaten along the throughway in a parking lot. <laughs> is that also from your garden? No, I'm afraid the frost has taken those greens. Yeah. Um, it sounds like Chris. Do you have an Do you have an engineer on the other line? Okay, because it sounds like a door is open or something. Or no, I hear some. Um, I hear some feedback on your end, like a repeating. Okay, great. Yeah. And oh yeah. Um, what about now? Yeah, Lord, is this the... Sure. Um, I'm really excited to be on this program. I've been listening for a long time. So to oh. when I first heard your voice I thought, on the earphones, I thought, oh, I'm listening to the radio. It's Krista Tippett. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, have, do you listen on the radio or do you podcast or show? Podcast. Yeah. I, you know, I heard about you. I mean, actually, we've been, I actually think we may have reached out a couple of years ago and couldn't make it work. But uh, then I was at up at Mesa Refuge last year, uh-huh. earlier this year, and they in Point Reyes, and they were saying, oh, she's so wonderful, I have to get her. And I said, yeah, I know, we tried. So I think that kind of prompted me to try again. Oh, Mesa Refuge, what <laughs> a splendid place, huh? Did Did you go there on a writer's retreat? I did. I spent a month there. Oh, oh gosh, a month. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it was. I had two weeks, which was actually revolutionary, but if I could have stayed longer, you know, I mean, I just, I don't know, I think I would have died and gone to heaven. Uh-huh. <laughs> Looking at it that day every morning, mm-mm. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. And those little, those little writer's cabins. Yes, yes. What do they call them? The sheds, I think. Yeah, yeah the writer's shed. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm very excited to... Um, to talk to you and 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 so as you know if you listen to the show you know I I I, don't, I I walk with people at this intersection of what they know and who they are um and I'm and obviously a big piece of your story is kind of the weaving of you know is that intersection between the, you the scientist and and you the human being and the the traditions and language you have from your indigenous culture and the 
traditions in language in which you work in as a as a botanist. So I'm just um, I'm I'm excited to just uh, to plunge in here. Do you have any questions for me before we start? Just that I want to confirm that. Uh, so this is our conversation from which an edited version will be created for the podcast. Is that yes. right? Yes. Now, now what we we do have a a, a tradition of um, also putting the unedited version out there, and um, and then but yes, what's on the radio and what we send up as a podcast is the um, is it will be a fifty two minute uh, edited version. That's produced. Sounds um, good. Are you okay with that? Oh yes, of course. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I. It's it's unusual that we put the unedited up, and honestly, I had a lot of I I, I had some misgivings about it early on, um, and it's it's actually been a really wonderful thing for people who just want to go really deep and like the joy of a of a true meandering conversation, which is what we get to have now. Um, but then we will, we will craft it. It will be surrounded by all kinds of artistry when it, when it, beca- when it's on public radio. Good. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so I just want to start by, um, well, let me start with, with the place I always start. Well, let me, let me start on back up a little bit. So I'm just so intrigued when I look at the way you introduce yourself, um, it will often include that you are a citizen, you are uh, from the citizen Potawatomi Nation, from the Bear Clan, adopted into the Eagles, and I'd love for you to just open that up a little bit and just describe, you know, kind of say a little bit about what you're describing. Take us a little bit into that world you're describing that you came from, and 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 ask also the the question I always ask um, about, you know. What was the spiritual and religious background of that that world you grew up in of your childhood? I'd like to start with the second part of that question. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to grow up in the fields and the woods of upstate New York. I was lucky in that regard, but disappointed also in that I grew up away from the Potawatomi people, away from all of our people by virtue of history, the history of removal and and the um, taking of children to the Indian boarding schools. And so, in a sense, I grew up in a family that had a lot of living indigenous values, but not the explicit indigenous culture. And those two things really come together in the fact that the questions that I had about who I was in the world, what the world was like, those are questions that I really wished I'd had a a cultural elder to ask, but I didn't. But I had the woods to ask. And there's a way in which just growing up in the the woods and the fields, um, they really became my doorway into culture in the absence of human elders i had plant elders instead hmm. so so you you were part you were still in that in a generation of people i mean your grandfather was in in an indian boarding school right in in pennsylvania this government program that was about civilizing <laughs> um, indian youth and and part of that was actually uh, muting, really, really um, extinguishing in a way that the, the spiritual traditions and so many of the cultural traditions and languages. So, you really grew up in the in 
in the aftermath. I mean, I guess in the in the vacuum that was created by that. That's right. It, it certainly mm-hmm. was this aftermath of of assimilation, and yet there is that something that was not assimilated, and that is what my immediate family and my extended family could pass down to me, which was mm-hmm. really a sense of identity and this kind of deep knowing that we belonged to a group of people who, in a sense, knew us and knew about us, but they were not visible to us. They were they were our extended family that existed somewhere in the world. And that was yeah. always a bit of a mystery to me. And when I would ask my dad questions about our culture, and he couldn't answer except to say that was left behind at Carlisle Indian yeah. School, I'd remember thinking, even as a kid, well, darn it, if there could be schools that would take all of that away from you, there ought to be schools that could give it back. Mm. And it's, it sounds like you did not grow up speaking the language of the Potawatomi Nation, which is Anishinaabe, is that right? That's that right. How would you say? Uh-huh. Yeah, the language is called Anishinaabe Moan, and the Potawatomi language is very close to that. Okay. And but you did you picked that up as an adult? Is that right? Is yes, that it's only recently? in the last mm-hmm. oh gosh, I'd say ten, ten to twelve years that I've mm-hmm. really been um, trying to teach myself, and I shouldn't say teach myself. I am, I am learning alone, but I am learning from great teachers. Right. I was I was intrigued to see that um, just to mention somewhere in your writing that you take part in a Potawatomi language lunchtime class that actually happens in Oklahoma, and you're there via the internet because you know I grew up actually in Potawatomi County in Oklahoma Um, and having told you that you know I never knew or learned anything about what that word meant much less you know the people and the culture it, it, it described that is so interesting to live in a place that is named that. And this is this is the the ways in which our cultures become invisible and the language yeah. becomes invisible and through history and um the reclaiming of that, the making culture visible again, to to speak the language in even the tiniest amount so that it's almost as if I, it feels like the, you know, the air is waiting to hear this language that had been lost hmm. For, hmm. for so long. So it hmm. delights me that I can be learning an ancient language by completely modern technologies. Yes, <laughs> right. Sitting at my office eating lunch, learning, um, learning Potawatomi grammar. Oh, yeah. So when you said a minute ago that you, you spent your childhood and, and actually the the kind of searching questions of your childhood were somehow somehow find found expression and 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 the closest that you came to answers in the woods and it seems to me that that's such a wonderful way to to fill out something else you've said before which is that you were born a botanist which is which is a way to say this right which was the language you got as you entered college um in at forestry school um at, at State University of New York. 
Yes, my my experience having been really tutored by the plants. They were my companions, my my good after-school friends, and that's really the way I thought of them. And so there was no question but that I'd study botany in college. It was my passion, still is, of course. Um, but the botany that I encountered there was so different than the way that I understood plants. It, you yeah. know, plants were reduced to object. They, what was supposedly important about them was the mechanism by which they worked, not what their gifts were, not what their their capacities were. They were really thought of as objects, whereas I thought of them as as, as subjects. And that shift in, in worldview was a big hurdle for me in entering the field of science. And it, it sounds to me like you 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 honored that 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 way of scientific inquiry, you you took it in, you learned it. Obviously, you became an expert in it as well. Um, I mean, one way you've said it is that is that you know, that science that was asking different questions, and and you had other questions, other language, and and other protocol that came from indigenous culture um, that were also in you to explore. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I think the thing that drove me in particular to be able to accept and embrace this Western scientific way of knowing is that to me plants were so fascinating. I wanted to know everything I could about them. And while I was acutely aware that this was seeing plants through a different lens than I had experienced, I was still hungry for that knowledge and, Mm -hmm. and a way to really kind of slip inside of a plant and see how they, how they did the amazing alchemy of photosynthesis. That was fascinating to me. But at the same time, I always held that that sense of great respect and regard and gratitude for them as beings. But what I was doing was to learn how those beings worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's one place in your writing where, which I think my notes are a little bit out of, have taken it a little out of context, but you're talking about beauty. And you're talking about, you know, a question you would have, which is why two flowers are beautiful together. And that that question, for example, would violate the division that is necessary for objectivity. But then you do this wonderful thing where you actually give a scientific analysis of the statement that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, <laughs> which is which would be one of the critiques of a question like that, that it's not really asking a question that is rational or scientific. That's, do you know what I'm talking about? I that, do. I do exactly. You know, would you kind of flesh that out? Because that's just it's such an interesting juxtaposition of how you actually started to both experience the dissonance between those kinds of questionings and also start to weave them together, I think. Yes, it, it goes back to the story of when I very proudly entered the forestry school as, a, as an 18-year-old and telling them that the reason that I wanted to study botany was because I wanted to know why asters and goldenrod looked so beautiful together. These are these amazing displays of this bright chrome yellow and deep purple of New England aster, and they 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 look stunning together, and the two plants so often intermingle rather than living apart from one another. And I wanted to know why that was. I thought that surely in the order and the harmony of the universe, there would be an explanation for why they looked so beautiful together. And I was told that that was not science, that if I was interested in beauty, I should go to art school. <laughs> Which was really right. demoralizing as a yeah. as as a freshman, but uh, 
I, I, I came to understand that that question wasn't going to be answered by science. That, mm-hmm. you know, science as a way of knowing explicitly sets aside, right, our, our emotions, our aesthetic reactions to things. We have to analyze them as if they were just pure material and not matter and spirit together. And yes, as it turns out, there's a very good biophysical explanation for why those plants grow together. So it's a matter of aesthetics and it's a it's a matter of ecology. Those complementary colors of purple and gold together being opposites on the on the color wheel, they're so vivid, they actually attract far more pollinators than that if those two Ugh. grew apart from one another. So each of those plants benefits by combining its beauty with the beauty of the other. And that's a question that science can address, certainly, um, as well as, as artists. And I just think that why is the world so beautiful is a question that we all ought to be embracing. Yeah. Now, you did you did work for a time at Bausch & Lomb after college. I mean, you went into a more traditional scientific endeavor. I wonder, was there was there kind of a turning point, a day or a moment where where you felt compelled to bring these things together in a in a in the way you could, these different ways of knowing and seeing and studying the world? Yes, there was. It it didn't happen in my one short, blessedly short, year of doing corporate science, um, mm-hmm. but certainly that experience of working um, for as a scientist for industry absolutely gave me the sense that that is not for me what science was for. And I, yeah. I quickly got away from that to go to graduate school and study ecology. I think the place that it became most important to me to start to bring these ways back of knowing back together again is when by... I won't call it a, a coincidence, by, but with synchronicity, as a, a young PhD botanist, I was invited to a gathering of traditional plant knowledge holders, and I was just there to listen. And it was such an amazing experience, four days of listening to people whose knowledge of the plant world was so much deeper than my own. And these were were these elders or these indigenous they or indigenous were, teachers? They okay. were indigenous elders, many mm-hmm. of whom, of course, had no formal botany training at all. Um, mm-hmm. Their education was on the land and with the plants and through the oral tradition. But I just sat there and soaked in this wonderful conversation, which interwove mythic knowledge and scientific knowledge into this beautiful cultural natural history. And for me, it was absolutely a watershed moment because it made me remember those things that starting to walk the science path had um, made me forget or attempted to make me forget. And I just saw that their knowledge was so much more whole and rich and 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 um, nurturing that I wanted to do everything that I could to bring those ways of knowing back into harmony. You you said one at one point you, that you had gotten to the point where you're talking about the names of plants, right? I was teaching the names and ignoring the songs. 
<laughs> so what, what do you mean by that? To me, the, one of the, the difficulties of moving in the scientific world is that when we name something, often with a scientific name, right, uh, this, this name becomes almost an end to inquiry, we sort of say, well, we know it now. We're able to systematize it and put a, a Latin binomial on it. So it's ours. We know what we need to know. But that is only looking, of course, at the morphology of the organism, at the way that it looks. It it ignores all of its relationships. It It's, it's such a mechanical kind of wooden representation mm. of, of what a plant really is, and even in that language, what a plant really is, as opposed to who a plant really is. And and so this this notion of of the song of the plants is representing them and recognizing that that the plants are are persons. They're non-human persons, but they're very special persons with their own way of knowing, their own stories, their own songs. And we reduce them tremendously if we just think about them as, as physical elements of the ecosystem. So, so this notion of, of the Earth's animacy, of the animacy of the natural world and, and everything in it, um, including plants, um, is very pivotal to your to your thinking and to the way you explore um, the natural world, even scientifically and 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 draw conclusions also about our relationship to the natural world. So I really want to you know delve into that some more. Um, you said that there's a grammar of animacy. <laughs> um, um, t- talk about that a little bit, yes. This comes back to what I think of, of as the innocent or childlike way of knowing. I sh- you know, that's a terrible thing to call it. We say it's an innocent way of knowing, and in fact, it's a very worldly and wise way of knowing to recognize the personhood of other beings as opposed to... Well, I mean, you know, you, you wrote about your childhood, and I mean, I also think, you know, we think about all the way we are as children in nature, that at some point we shed that that just delight and deep curiosity and an ability to pay attention. You said, as a child, I couldn't help but wonder why the world was so full of different beings and what their lives were like. So, so that kind of way of moving in nature was in you, was in you as well as, as in, in so many of us. That's right. That's right. And that kind of deep attention that we pay as, yeah. as children um, is something that I, that I, cherish that I think we all can cherish and reclaim that because attention is that doorway to gratitude, the doorway to wonder, the doorway to reciprocity. And it it worries me greatly that today's children can recognize a hundred corporate logos and fewer than 10 plants. Mm-hmm. That means they're not paying attention. Um, but back to this notion of animacy, what I, what I understood from the plants at, at a very early age, is their animacy, that they are, are persons, not only respected persons, but really they were my teachers. And this notion of the personhood, not only of plants, but the personhood of all beings is a key part of the worldview that I hope that we as humans can reclaim. 
this idea of the animacy of the world is coded in the English language, isn't it? Um, in that, in the English language, if we want to speak of that sugar maple or that salamander, the only grammar that we have to do so is to call those beings an it. Mm-hmm. And if I called my grandmother or the person sitting across the room from me and it that would be so rude right you know that would be <laughs> i just robbed you of your personhood of your humanity i disrespected you and we wouldn't tolerate that for for members of our own species but we not only tolerate it but it's the only way we have in the english language to speak of other beings is as it with the exception, of course, we sometimes um, will call our pets he or she, yes, or yeah. interestingly, our cars he or she. <laughs> yes, <laughs> as if they. Yes, were... my seventeen-year-old son calls his car she. Mm, yeah, that's right. Because uh-huh. because he is he has such a relationship with that car yeah. that he can't think of it just as as an object, right? And and so. In, when I began learning the Potawatomi language, I was fine with nouns, but when I got to verbs, it was very difficult because the, the, our verbs are structured around whether what you're speaking of is animate or inanimate. And unlike, um, say, romance languages where there are different cases by gender, right? Um, right, masculine or feminine or neuter even. Right, right. Mm-hmm. In in Potawatomi, the cases that we have are animate and inanimate. And it is impossible in our language to speak of other living beings as its. So living beings would all be animate, all living beings, anything that was alive it, in, in the Potawatomi language. Would not be its. Would Living beings are animate in the yes, language. Absolutely, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. living beings. And inanimate would be what materials or. You raise a very good question because the <laughs> way that that again Western science would give the criteria for what does it mean to be alive is a little different than you might yeah. find in traditional culture where we think of water as alive, as rocks as alive, alive in different ways, um, but but certainly not inanimate. Generally, the inanimate grammar is reserved for those things which humans have created. Okay. Okay. Like a table, something like that? Yes, exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, I, 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 I read in you that when you and, you know, I have to say, and, and I'm sure you know this because I'm sure you get this reaction a lot, especially in scientific circles, it is, it's, unco- it's unfamiliar and slightly uncomfortable in Western ears to hear someone refer to plants as persons. It's, it's unfamiliar. And I know when you've used this kind of language, um, which, you know, it, it also does, doesn't it, it kind of points at the, the paucity of our vocabulary for talking about, you know, what is animate. We're, we're so literal about these things, um, but then you you know what the charge you get back in science is that you that you're indulging in anthrop anthropomorphic uh, thinking, you know, and that that makes you unscientific. <laughs> That's right. Um, is does that happen a lot? Is that is that a um, kind of a 
common reaction. Sure, sure. Scientists are are very eager to say that that we oughtn't to personify elements in nature for fear of anthropomorphizing. And when what I mean when I talk about the personhood of all beings, plants included, is not that I am attributing human characteristics to them. Not at all. I'm attributing plant characteristics to plants. I am I just as it would be disrespectful to try and 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 put plants in the same category through the lens of anthropomorphism, I think it's also deeply disrespectful to say that they have no consciousness, no awareness, no beingness at all. We don't understand it yet, but um, that's really different than anthropomorphizing, I think. Yeah, and I you also make uh, such a such a common sense point that the that the arrogance on the side of that charge is that the only way to be animate is to be human. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of the it's implicit in in the way we draw this distinction between ourselves and other living beings. That's right. That's right. And both traditional understandings of and by I should, I should I sometimes get into trouble with my language of saying traditional when 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 I say traditional I mean sort of traditional indigenous ways um, yeah. and I guess I should say conventional when I mean um, the scientific ways but now I got off on a tangent what was I thinking where were we um, um, I said the arrogance of that the that the only that humans are the only animate beings. Yes. Of it. Yes. He's talking about anthropomorphism right. charge. And this denial of, of personhood to all other beings is is increasingly being refuted by science itself. There are Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can't think of a single scientific study in the last few decades that has demonstrated that plants or animals are dumber than we think. <laughs> you know, it's always yeah. the opposite, right? What we're revealing right. is the fact that they have extraordinary capacities, which are so unlike our own, but we dismissed them because, well, if they don't do it like animals do it, then they must not be doing anything. When in fact, yeah. they're, they're sensing their environment, responding to their environment in incredibly sophisticated ways. You know, the science which is showing that plants have capacity to learn, to have memory. Um, it's really, we're at the edge of a, of a, a wonderful revolution and really understanding the sentience of other beings. Yeah. Here's something beautiful that you wrote in, um, in your book, Gathering Moss, uh, just as an example. Um, the rocks are beyond slow, beyond strong, and yet yielding to a soft green breath as powerful as a glacier. The mosses wearing away their surfaces grain by grain, bringing them slowly back to sand. There is an ancient conversation going on between mosses and rocks, poetry to be sure, about light and shadow and the drift of continents. That's <laughs> so beautiful and so it's so amazing to think about, to just read those sentences and think about that conversation, as you say. Yes, and it's a conversation that takes place at a pace that we humans, especially we contemporary humans who are rushing about, we can't even grasp the pace at which that conversation takes place. Mm. And so thinking about 
plants as as persons, indeed thinking about rocks as persons, forces us to shed our idea of the, that the only pace that we live on is the human pace. Um, and it's, I think, very, very exciting to to think about these ways of being which um, which happen on completely different scales and so exciting to think about what we might learn from them. You um, you make such an interesting observation that you know the way you walk through the world and 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 immerse yourself in uh, moss and plant life. You know, you said you become aware that we have some deficits compared to our companion species. I, I sense that photosynthesis that you know we can't even photosynthesize mm. that this is a quality you covet. It's true <laughs> in our botanical brothers and sisters. <laughs> Tell me, just tell me, tell, take us, take me inside that. I, I do. I, I understand. It. I have photosynthesis envy. Yeah, um, the the ability to take these non-living elements of the world, air and light and water, and turn them into food that can then be shared with the whole rest of the world. You know, to turn them into medicine that is medicine for people and for trees and for soil. You know, the, the creative energy of, of photosynthesis and that photosynthesis and then all of the things that, that plants can make is just sweeps me away with with awe um, that they should mm. do this. And then given this incredible gift that they have, we dismiss them as objects, as lower than, as lesser than ourselves. And we cannot even approach the kind of creativity that they have. Um, one thing you say that I'd like I'd like to understand better is science polishes the gift of seeing. Indigenous traditions work with gifts of listening and language. So, so I'd love a, an example of let's see something, and it could be moss or you know you tell a wonderful force about the story about the life force of mushrooms, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know something where you you the you know what it, what are the gifts of seeing that science offers, and then the gifts of listening and language, and how all of that gives you this rounded. Um, understanding of something. What I mean when I say that science polishes the gift of seeing brings us to an intense kind of attention that that science allows us to bring to the natural world. And that kind of attention also includes ways of seeing quite literally through other lenses, right? That we might have the hand lens, the magnifying glass in our hands that allows us to look at that moss with an acuity that the human eye doesn't have. So we see more. The the microscope that lets us see the gorgeous architecture by which it's put together. The scientific instrumentation in the laboratory that would allow us to, to look at the miraculous way that water interacts with cellulose, let's say. That's what I mean by science polishes our ability to see because it gives us, it extends our eyes into other realms. But we're in many cases looking at the surface and by the surface I mean the material being alone. Right. 
But in indigenous ways of knowing, we say that we know a thing when we know it not only with our physical senses, with our intellect, but also when we engage our intuitive ways of knowing, of, of, of emotional knowledge and spiritual knowledge. And that's really what I mean by listening, by saying that traditional knowledge engages us in listening it brings us back to that notion that the plant or the animal that is engaged with our attention has something to say. And that, mm-hmm. that so we again think of it not just on the surface, it's it's material being, but it's personhood. And and what is the story that, that that being might share with us if we knew how to listen as well as we know how to see. And so so um so, so maybe let's talk some more about mosses because you're, you, you did write this beautiful book about it, and you are a bryologist, is that right? That's, that's correct. A, a, and so that's a, um, a specialty with even within, um, what do you have? Uh, within body bi- biology, yeah. I've seen you describe within body. Um, so I mean, I learned, and also I learned that you're that your work with moss inspired Elizabeth Gilbert's novel, The Signature of All Things, which is about a botanist. Um, I learned so many things from that book. I mean, it's also that I had never thought very deeply about moss, but that moss inhabits nearly every ecosystem on Earth. There are over 22,000 species that mosses have the ability to clone themselves from broken off leaves or torn fragments, that they're integral to the functioning of the forest. I mean... I'd love for you to just jump off what you just said about um, the gifts of listening and language that you have from indigenous tradition. Just describe some of the things you've heard (laughs) and understood from moss um, with those ears and eyes. Thank you for asking that question because it really gets to this idea how science asks us to learn about organisms Traditional knowledge asks us to learn from them. Mm. And Mm. when I think about mosses in particular as the most ancient of of land plants, they have been here for a very long time. They figured out a lot about how to live well on the earth. And uh, for me, I think they're really good storytellers in the way that they live. An example of what I mean by this is in their simplicity in the power of being small mosses become so successful all over the world because they live in these tiny little layers on rocks on logs and on trees they don't strive to be big and to be powerful they work with the natural forces that lie over every little surface of of the world and mm. and so they're to me they are exemplars of of not only surviving but flourishing by working with natural processes mosses are superb teachers about living within your means hmm. is you say they take possession of spaces that are too small other plants are excluded from those spaces but they they thrive there. That's right. Mosses um, have, in the 
ecological sense, very low competitive ability because they're small, because they don't grab resources very efficiently. Um, and so this means that they have to live in the interstices. They have to live in places mm. where the, the dominant competitive plants can't live. But the way that they do this is really brings into question the whole um, premise that competition is what really structures biological evolution and biological mm. success, because mosses are not good competitors at all, and yet they're the oldest plants on the planet. They have persisted here for 350 million years. They ought to be doing something right here. And one of those somethings, I think, has to do with their ability to cooperate with one another, to share the limited resources that they have, to um, to really give more than they take. Mosses build soil, they purify water, they are like the coral reefs of the forest. They make homes for this myriad of all these very cool little invertebrates who live in there. They are just engines of biodiversity. They do all of these things, and yet, you know, they're only a centimeter tall. <laughs> I mean, another point that is um, implied in how you talk about us acknowledging the animacy of plants is that in when whenever we use the language of it, whatever we're talking about, um, well, let's say this: we we would we never. And you said, as you said, when we love animals, when we love non-human species, we then we turn them into him or her. We we give we use the language of we give them names, right? But the point is, we don't we don't call anything we love and want you know want to protect and would work to protect it. Um, that language distances us. It certainly does. And the language of it, which distances, disrespects, and objectifies, I can't help but think is at the root of a, a worldview that um, allows us to exploit nature. It's so well, and and by exploit, I mean in a in a in a way that really seriously degrades the land and, and, and the waters, because in fact, we, we have to consume, we have to take, we're animals, right? Um, but that to me is different than really rampant exploitation. But this is why I've been thinking a lot about, are there ways to bring this notion of animacy into the English language? Because hmm. so many of us that I've talked to about this feel really deeply uncomfortable calling the living world it. And yet we don't have an alternative other than he or she. So I've been really trying to think about this and and to think about whether we might have new pronouns, new, new grammar that allows us to make that choice that if we have a being with whom we have this deeply respectful reciprocal relationship that we don't have to call them it. And I've been thinking about um, the inspiration that the Anishinaabe language offers in, in this way, and and uh, contemplating new pronouns. Do you have you 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 you've been playing with uh, one or two, haven't you? I have, I have. Yeah. So, the one that that I've really been playing with is to try to find a word that conveys the 
personhood or the beingness of of an organism. And I've been thinking about the word aki in our language, which refers to land. And there's a beautiful word, bemadizi aki, which one of my elders kindly shared with me. It means a living being of the earth. But could we be inspired by that little sound at the end of that word, the ki, and use ki as a pronoun, a respectful pronoun inspired by this language, um, as an alternative to he, she, or it, so that when I'm tapping my maples in the springtime, I can say, we're going to go hang the on the buckle, the sorry, we're going to go hang the bucket on key. Key is giving us maple syrup um, hmm. this springtime, and so this then, of course, acknowledges the beingness of, of of that tree, and we don't reduce it it <laughs> to to an object. <laughs> it feels so wrong to say that. Right. Um, and you made the point earlier about how children have this natural affinity for the personhood about other beings. Don't our kids all say he or she for for plants mm-hmm. and for trees? Yeah. And then we teach them not to. And we, bugs. And yeah. bugs. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. They understand mm-hmm. this personhood, this, um, this beingness. And then we teach them them that that's not the way the world is. We say, no, no, that's really an object. That's not a living being at all. But having mm. key as a pronoun um, gives you an option to speak respectfully of the world that, that you love. And I have some um, reservations um, about using um a, a word inspired from the Anishinaabe language because I don't in any way want to engage in cultural appropriation. Um, mm. But this word, this sound, ki, is of course also the word for who, right? In in Spanish yeah. and in French. Yeah. Yeah. It turns yeah. out that of course it's it's a it's an alternate pronunciation for chi, for life force, for life energy. Yeah. I'm finding mm-hmm. lots of examples that people are bringing to me um, where this word also means a living being of the earth. That's really interesting. The and yeah, go on. The the plural pronoun that I think is is perhaps even more powerful is not one that we need to be inspired by another language because we already have it in English and that is the word kin Hmm. Kin. That's the plural. Yes, kin is the Hmm. plural of ki, so that when the geese fly overhead, we can say kin are flying south for the winter, Hmm. Um, Hmm. come back soon, so that every time we speak of the living world, we can embody our relatedness to to them. And that, I think, um, points at... um, this notion of reciprocity, which is also central to your thinking. Um, I mean, sustainability is the language we use about, is, is some language we use about the world we're living into or need to live into. And I sense from your writing, and especially from your indigenous tradition, that sustainability really is not big enough and that it might even be a cop out. <laughs> I mean, you didn't use that language, but um, you're actually talking about 
a much more generous and expansive vision of relatedness between humans and the natural worlds and what we want to create. I am. I agree with you that the language of sustainability is pretty limited. And it also has, I think, at its heart, sustainability is often couched in terms, I think, of a formula by which we can keep taking from the earth into perpetuity. Um, we say that in order, if something is going to be sustainable, its ability to provide for us will not be compromised into the future. And that's all a good thing. You know, the, the, the fact that we recognize that we can't continue to degrade our ecosystems and have any prayer of, a, of flourishing for ourselves and for our non-human neighbors, that's all to the good. But at its heart, sustainability, the way we think about it, is embedded in this worldview that we as human beings um, have some ownership over these what we call resources, um, and that we want the world to be able to continue to keep, that, w that human beings can keep taking and keep consuming. The notion of reciprocity is really different from that. It's, it's, it's an expansion from that because what it says is, is that our role as human people is not just to take from the earth, and the role of the earth is not just to provide for our single species. So right. reciprocity actually kind of broadens this notion to say that not only does the earth sustain us, but that we have the capacity and the responsibility to sustain her in return. So it, it, it broadens the notion of what it is to be a human person, not just a consumer. I hate it when we are labeled by our governments and by our economies just as consumers. And we've almost come to believe that, that that's all we are as a species is consumers. And we forget that we have this capacity to be givers as well, that we can give back mm -hmm. to ecosystems. And there's, there's such joy in being able to do that, to have it be um, mutual flourishing instead of um, the more narrow definition of, of sustainability so that we can just keep on taking. I, I keep thinking as I'm reading you and, and now as I'm listening you, to you, I mean, a conversation I've had across the years with, um, with Christians who are, who, are, who are going back to the Bible um, and seeing how a certain certain translations and readings and interpretations, especially of that language of Genesis about you know human beings uh, being blessed to have dominion, what is it to have do dominion uh, and subdue uh, the earth, um, was read in a certain way in a certain period of time by human beings, by industrialists and colonizers and and even missionaries. Um, and so it was actually sacred language that emboldened some of what it, many people, including Christians, you know, are now wanting to reverse. Do you do you ever have that? That so so there's there there is language and there's a mentality um, about taking that that actually seemed to have kind of a religious blessing on it. Um, and now people are reading those same texts differently. Do you ever have those conversations with people? Because, I mean, you, the tradition you come from, 
would never ever have read the text that way. <laughs> Just, right. So we're, we're. I mean, I think culturally we are kind. We are incrementally moving t- more towards the worldview that you come from. I think that that's true, um, and and when I think about how it is that we are making this transformation and this, what I would see as kind of a longing among all of, no, I shouldn't say all, a longing among many faith traditions to reclaim a more gentle, equitable, just relationship with the earth as opposed to the, um, the sort of the, the sanctioned dominion over over yeah. the earth. I, th- I think that that longing and the materiality of the need for redefining our relationship with place is being taught to us by the land, isn't it? Um, we've seen that that the that in a way we've been captured by a worldview of dominion that does not serve our species well in the long term, and moreover, it doesn't serve all the other beings in creation well at all. And mm-hmm. so. We are attempting a, a, a mid-course correction here. And I think that's really important to recognize that for most of human history, I think the evidence suggests that we have lived well and in balance with the living world. And it's, to my way of thinking, almost an eye blink of, of time in human history that we have had a truly adversarial relationship with a, nature. A few hundred years. A right? few hundred years since the Industrial yeah. Revolution. Yeah. And, and it was a profound error from which we're learning. And so I think it's really important that, that people recognize the transience, perhaps, of this exploitative worldview, that the land is teaching us, and we as humans with incredible capacities to learn and adapt, we're learning and changing too, and understanding that, that this isn't going to work for anybody. And so, of course, we're moving in what Joanna Macy calls that great turning, right? The, yeah. the turning away from this industrial exploitative worldview to a, a worldview that embraces those systems that, that produce life. And, and so it seems to me that this view that you have of the natural world and our place in it, it's, you know, it, it's a way to think about biodiversity and us as part of that. But, but reciprocity, again, takes that a step farther, um, right? Um, yes, and you know you have you you say something that's really stunning that you know we take from the earth what we need we ask what more can we take we more rarely ask what does the earth ask of us in return but you you you, you almost you, you you say something you know this is uncomfortable to factor into our equation of grappling with the, our relationship with the natural world, um, it's almost a dare, I think, that you pose, that it's not just that we love the earth, but that the earth loves us in return. <laughs> so so flesh that out for me. I'm, I'm not sure that the issue of reciprocity is, is, is contingent upon recognizing or, or even exploring, I should say, whether the earth loves us back or, yeah. or, or not. Um, and I, to me, they're, they're kind of two separate issues. Um, okay. But 
the idea of of reciprocity, of recognizing that that we humans do have gifts that we can give in return for all that has been given to us is, I think, um, a really generative and creative way to be a human in the world. Um, and, you know, some of our oldest teachings are saying that, you know, uh, what does it mean to be an educated person? It means that you know what your gift is and how to give it on behalf of the land and, and, and of the people. And that, I think, helps human people reclaim agency and a, a kind of responsibility um, to the rest of, of, of creation, which can be profoundly joyful um, to say, yes, I can keep, I can be part of, of keeping this beautiful world going. Um, and yeah, so to me, that's what I really mean by reciprocity. And each of us has you know, a different gift, right? Um, just like every single species has its own gift. And if one of those species and the gifts that it carries is missing in biodiversity, the ecosystem is is depauperate. The ecosystem is, is too simple. It doesn't work as well when that gift is missing. And that's mm-hmm. the way I feel about humans as well, that, that when we resign ourselves to just being takers rather than givers, the earth is missing what it is that we as humans have to give. Um, yeah, here's, I mean, here's something you wrote. You, wrote, you talked about goldenrods and asters a minute ago, and, and you said, when I am in their presence, their beauty asks me for reciprocity, to be the complementary color to make something beautiful in response. Yes. And in that way, I actually think about um, my transition in a sense from from doing scientific work to doing the work of a writer and a storyteller as two two different forms of reciprocity with the world Mm -hmm. and um and i think of my writing very tangibly as as my way of 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 entering into reciprocity with the living world it's that which i can give and it comes from my years as a scientist of of deep paying attention to the living world and not only to their names but to their songs and having heard those songs i feel a deep responsibility to share them and to see if in some way stories could help people fall in love with the world again hmm. i mean you you are you you remain a professor of environmental biology that's right, um, and and um, at SUNY, and you have also created this center for Native peoples and the environment. So you're you're also, I mean, that's also some, a gift you're bringing. Whether you're 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 bringing those these disciplines into conversation with each other. I wonder. Um, tell me what ha- what is happening in that conversation? How how is that working? And are there things happening that surprise you? Yes. What we're trying to do at the Center for Native Peoples in the Environment is to bring together the tools of Western science, but to employ them or maybe deploy them in the context of some of the indigenous philosophy and ethical frameworks about um, our relationship to the earth. And so our 
programs within the Center for Native Peoples in the Environment range from education to, to research and outreach, working with tribal nations on environmental problem solving. One of the things that I would um, especially like to highlight about that is I really think of our work as, in a sense, trying to indigenize science education within the academy. Because as a young person, as a student entering into that world and understanding that the indigenous ways of knowing, um, these organic ways of knowing are really absent from academia, um, I think that we can train better scientists, train better environmental professionals when there is a plurality of these ways of knowing, when indigenous knowledge is present in the discussion. So we have created a, a new minor in Indigenous um, peoples and the mm -hmm. environment so that when our students leave and, and, and when, they, when our students graduate, they, they have an awareness of other ways of knowing. They have this um, glimpse into a, a worldview which is really different from the scientific worldview. So I think of them as just being stronger and have this ability for um, what has been called two-eyed seeing, seeing the world through both of these lenses. Mm. And in, in that way have a... Uh, a bigger tool set for um, environmental problem solving. So much of what we do as environmental scientists, um, if we take a strictly scientific approach, we have to exclude values and ethics, right? Because those mm. are not part of the, the scientific method. There's good reason for that. And, and much of the power of the scientific method comes from the, the rationality and the objectivity. But a lot of the problems that we face in terms of sustainability and environment lie at the juncture of nature and culture. So we, right, right. we can't just rely on a, on a single way of knowing that explicitly excludes values and ethics. That's not going to, to move us forward. I know this is I know this is a fairly new program, but I I wonder, um, uh, you know, are you seeing students take the take up this task of creating synergy? And I mean, I think you've used the word symbiosis, or you know, this two-eyed seeing. Um, are you seeing results that are interesting um, about where what, how people are applying this or where they're taking it? Or is it just too early for that? Well, it's too early to see it, I think, in in what, you know, those, those scientific and professional metrics, if you will. Right. But what I see is that the students who have become acquainted with these ways of knowing are, are the natural disseminators of these ideas. They tell me that when they are taking their other classes in conservation biology or wildlife ecology or fisheries, they now feel like they have the vocabulary and the perspective to speak up and say, well, when we're designing this salmon management plan, what is the input of, of, of Native peoples? Um, where, how will their traditional knowledge help us do better fisheries management? The, the, the invisible knowledge of traditional knowledge has become visible and has become mm. part of, of the discourse. All right. Um, I, I would like for you to say a little bit more about this idea of the Earth loving us back. Yes, <laughs> I'm happy to. Um, I mean, you, there's, in, in your book... Um, 
In your in your book uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, you you know you, you, there's this line. It came to me while picking beans, the secret of happiness. <laughs> and you talk about gardening, which is actually something that many people do, and I think more people are doing. Um, so I mean that's a very concrete way of of illustrating this. It it is. Um, and I'm trying to think of where to begin this. Um, in in talking with my environment students, they wholeheartedly agree that they love the earth. But when I ask them the question of, does the earth love you back, um, there's a great deal of, of hesitation and reluctance and eyes cast down like, oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> Are we even allowed to talk about that? That would mean right. that the earth was animate. That would mean that the earth right. had agency and that, the, that I was not an anonymous little um, blip on the landscape, that I was known by my home place. And it's both a beautiful idea and a, a kind of a scary idea if we've always thought we had the anonymity of, mm. of, of that, that sense yeah. that people often have of, oh, well, you know, I don't matter at all in the universe. I'm just, you know, one little being. Um, so it, it, it's a very challenging notion. But I bring it to the garden and think about the way that, that we demonstrate when, when we as human people demonstrate our love for one another, it is in ways that I find very much analogous to the way that the earth takes care of us. Is when we love somebody, we put their, their well-being at the top of the list and we want to feed them well. We want to nurture them. We want to teach them. We want to bring beauty into their lives. We want to make them comfortable and safe and, and healthy. That's, that's how I demonstrate love in part to my family and that's just what I feel in the garden um, hmm. as, as the earth loves us back in beans and corn and <laughs> strawberries <laughs> you know food, food could taste bad it could be bland and boring but it isn't there are these wonderful gifts that the, the plant beings to my mind have, have shared with us and it's, hmm. a, it's, a, it's a really liberating idea to think that that the earth could love us back but it's also the notion uh, it opens the, the notion of reciprocity that with that love and regard from the earth comes a real deep responsibility yeah what is it you say I mean the the large framework of that is the renewal of the world for the privilege of breath yes. that's right on the edge yes Yes. You, you also use the word gratitude. Um, gratitude as a kind of core element in our relationship with the natural world and gratitude as something that has evolutionary advantage. <laughs> it's a very fascinating idea. Yeah. You know, we think about gratitude sometimes as, as an emotion that we experience into the world with various targets as if it was just an individual property, an individual expression. But when you think about that there are cultures which are organized around 
gratitude, through cycles of ceremony, through practices of, of, of reciprocity. These become cultures of, of gratitude that I think have very real evolutionary consequences because gratitude is so much more than, than thank you. you know, grat- when you really feel that, that deep connection to, to the other beings who have given you these gifts of food and water and clouds and all these beautiful things, um, when you feel that gratitude, I think that it engenders a sense of self-restraint in how much mm. you take um, mm. because you're recognizing it as the gift of another being. And when somebody gives you a gift, you know, you don't start rifling through their basket looking for more. <laughs> you take it right, and you right, appreciate right. it and and then you stop. And cultures of, of gratitude, I think, have ethics which promote this kind of self-restraint Cultures of gratitude also, I think, are cultures of reciprocity because when we have these protocols of gratitude, we not only say thank you, but it makes us want to give a gift back in return. And in many cases, those gifts that we can give back to the earth are, are gifts of stewardship and they're gifts of care, of replanting, of, 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 of renewal. And so it shouldn't be any surprise that cultures that, that have these expressions and protocols for gratitude also um, will have enhanced biodiversity and, and ecological flourishing because people are, are, are playing a very beneficial role in that ecosystem as a form of reciprocity and an expression of gratitude. So when you talk about cultures of gratitude or protocols, I mean, just concretely, you know, give me some examples that you know or that, you, that, are, that come to mind for you. One of the examples that comes immediately to mind are the my Haudenosaunee neighbors. I live just a few miles from the Onondaga Nation, where the where, where that I would certainly think of as a culture of gratitude. The Haudenosaunee and the Onondaga among them are justly famous for a wonderful um, body of knowledge known as the Thanksgiving address. This is a, a beautiful oration which is used every time people gather on a, on, a, on a daily basis. And it brings all the people together in gratitude by going through all of the elements of, of the creation one by one and naming them and naming the gifts that they bring to the world and to each other and expressing our, our acknowledgement of those gifts, our gratitude and, um, and direction toward reciprocity in return for those gifts. And I have seen in, in so many cases the power of these words that can take a very long time um, to yeah. say, but people settle into an attitude of, of finding a common ground in gratitude, of saying, yes, we are all together grateful that the water is still here and doing its duty. Yes, we are grateful to the moon. Yes, we are grateful to the food plants and to the fish. And when you take the time out of your business and your daily life to name and express all that which you are grateful for, you feel this great sense of 
contentment and, 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 and wealth and agreement because all of those gifts belong to all of the people. And so to me, it's a, it's a powerful way to create consensus and agreement and, and, and kinship and relatedness, all of this through a recitation of, of gratitude. And then one proceeds to the business at hand, having established these these bonds of kinship and 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 gratitude, so I think it's a it's a, a really a profound practice that I'm grateful for having learned from my Haudenosaunee neighbors. I, I'm thinking of how, um, for all the public debates we have about, you know about our relationship with the natural world and whether it's climate change or not or man-made. Um, there's also the reality that very few people living anywhere you know, don't have some experience of, of the natural world changing in ways that they often don't recognize. And in places, all kinds of places, with all kinds of political cultures, where I see people just getting together and doing the work that needs to be done I and mean, becoming stewards you know however however they justify that or however they wherever they fit into the public debates or not a kind of common denominator is that they have discovered a love for the place they come from right mm-hmm. and and that that they share even that and they may have these same kinds of political uh, differences that are out there but but there's this love of place and that creates a different world of action um, and that seems to me to kind of maybe wouldn't use the language and doesn't have the rituals that you describe but in fact comes from the same human place you're exactly right um, because when we an expression of gratitude I think often comes from a place of love and recognition, and, and exactly it might be a chicken or egg. I'm not sure really which comes first, love or or gratitude, but they're inextricably linked. But out mm-hmm. of that place of of love and gratitude for our place, I think you're right. I mean, as much as the po- political leaders, economic uh, forces, etc., may not be acting on the behalf of, of of land and people. People are. I think there is this, you know, this co-arising, as we call it, right, of, of, of people who are in love with their places and, and saying that I am going to defend this piece of ground. I'm right. going to take right. care yeah. of this piece. I'm going to plant here. I'm going to take a stand here. Um, Barry Lopez talks about that in his um, one of his wonderful writings about talking about the Chiarenza, the place that your feet stand, the place that you would fight for, um, yeah. and that everybody um, can have that or should have that. Um, and if we each did have that one piece of land that we love so dearly that, that we would fight for it and care for it, we wouldn't be in this, this situation. Um, but we also have to believe that our actions make a difference. And, and that is a powerful right. Por- right. form of reciprocity, to fight for your place. Yes, and I think the truth is, in local places, the place we come from or the place we've chosen to be part of, we can see the results of our actions more than we can hook into the, you know, the cosmic discussion about the future of the planet. 
That's right? right. I mean, even if you even if you feel deeply about that, it's hard to know what you could possibly do to make a difference. But you can see that in the place you live in. That's right. And the people with with whom you live, um, mm-hmm. because that interaction with place is 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 not well. It can be solitary, but in terms of really fighting for a place and creating that 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 sense of 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 place and responsibility for place is is a deeply communal kind of act, and right. it, it brings people together in in pretty powerful ways. Yeah. Um, so I just you know, I just want to know if, if there's are there communities you you just mentioned the community near you is, are there others that you think of when you think of this kind of communal love of place where you see new new models happening. Well, I, I, there are there are many many examples. I think so many of them are are rooted in the food movement. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. that's really exciting because there is a place where um, reciprocity between people and the land is expressed in food, and who doesn't yeah. want that? <laughs> it's good for people. It's it's good f- for land. So I think movements from tree planting to community gardens, farm to school, local, organic, all of these things are just at the right scale um, yeah. because they're the the benefits come directly into you and to your family, and the benefits of your relationships to land are manifest right in your community, right in your patch of soil and what you're putting on your plate. So I think the local food movement is just rich with with wonderful examples of, of reciprocity and innovation and, in a sense, reclaiming some of these ancient ways of caring for the land and caring for each other by sharing food, just as the land shares food with us, we share food with each other and then contribute to the flourishing of that place that feeds us. And and I think, you know, to circle back to your point of <laughs> we we love the earth, the earth loves us back. All of those all this movement is also about what is more delicious. I mean, what is good for us and what is delicious. So there's this great there's this delight that's part of it too. It's not all Eat your spinach, as they used to say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it's true. It's joyful. Um, yeah. yeah, you really, you really see that. Even the spinach tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and you know what? The other thing about it is that, to me, it's an antidote to the message that we hear way too often, which is that what's good for um, the environment must be bad for the economy. Right? This is such a mm. false dichotomy, and and the local food movement just disproves that left and right, doesn't it? Um, To say that Mm. what's good for the land is also good for people and for community and for biodiversity. And it's enacted at just the right scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to read something um, from, I'm sure this is from Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, And because I'm I'm always asking, I'm always wondering about, you know, what you've learned in the course of your life, how your sense of what it means to be human has um, evolved and is evolving, and, and not that, that I expect you to answer that question, but just like how would you start talking about it. But I'd like to read this beautiful passage you wrote about reciprocity and kind of in the context of this, you know, what you are learning about what it means to be human that you perhaps didn't know or might be might have been surprised to hear this when you were a child, that this is how you would see it. So you wrote, we are all bound by a covenant of reciprocity. 
plant breath for animal breath, winter and summer, predator and prey, grass and fire, night and day, living and dying. Our elders say that ceremony is the way we can remember to remember. In the dance of the giveaway, remember that the earth is a gift we must pass on just as it came to us. When we forget, the dances we'll need will be for mourning, for the passing of polar bears, the silence of cranes, for the death of rivers, and the memory of snow. I mean, that's, that's one of the hard places your, this world you straddles brings you to. But um, again, so how, how all these things you, you live with and learn, how, how does they start to shift the way you think about what it means to be human? The passage that you just read and all the experience, I suppose, that, that flows into that has, as I've gotten older, brought me to a really acute sense, not only of the beauty of the world, but the grief that we feel for it, um, for her, uh, for Ki, um, that we can't have an awareness of, of the beauty of the world without also a tremendous awareness of the wounds, you know, that we see the old growth forest and we also see the clear cut. We see the beautiful mountain and we see it torn open for mountaintop removal. And so one of the things that I continue to learn about and need to learn more about is the transformation of love to grief to even stronger love and the interplay of, of love and grief that we feel for the world and how to harness the, the power of, of, those, of those related impulses is, is, is something that I have um, ahead to learn. Hmm. You wrote um, somewhere in Gathering Moss, when I say my morning thanks, I listen a moment for a reply. <laughs> and I, I wonder, do you have a ritual of thanks that, that you do every day? Do you have a I do. words that you speak? I mean, I wonder if you would say those words for us, even if we won't be able to understand them. And also I'm curious about, you know, what do you hear back in reply? <laughs> Maybe just give me, you know, if ever or this morning. Yeah. My, my morning ritual is that I, I live out in the country and I walk up to the hilltop behind my house around the time the sun is coming up and, and stand on that hilltop and, and just breathe in the sound of the birds or the wind in the bare trees as it was this morning and, and center myself in that feeling of gratitude and recognition for all those other lives that are around me. My words of thanks are, are modeled on the Anishinaabe sunrise ceremony in, in acknowledging uh, four cardinal directions and, and all of the teachings and the gifts that are given to us from the east, from the south, from the west, and to the north. And then I send my greetings also, and most especially to Meshach Makwe, to Mother Earth, and um, to the great mystery above and recognize that there am I, this one human standing at the center of all of those directions and feeling acutely my responsibility for gratitude. And what I like to do is, 
is not to ask for anything, but just to be grateful for everything that I've been given. And to, I suppose there's one thing I ask, and that is that of all the gifts that are given to us, I, I have the capacity and can grow into using them well. You, um, you wrote somewhere, and I, I can't find it in my notes, about a ritual that in, and I believe it was in Potawatomi ritual, that, um, that a person who's being honored rather than receiving gifts shares that back is is the one giving gifts to others i i really i loved that yeah and that actually makes a lot of sense it's not the way we do it um it is a beautiful would, ceremony we call it the giveaway yeah. the giveaway or oh, the that's the giveaway that's the giveaway okay. or the minute yeah. walk yeah um where um in return for all that has been given to us and that that we give gifts back um to each other, it is the essence of of reciprocity. Hmm. Um, would you say a little bit of the um, of the of your morning thanks and the Anishinaabe? I, I can you I, or no? I, I can. I'm I'm just trying to think of whether I should. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. I get that. I get that. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, so let me just, when when you say I listen a moment for a reply, I mean I understand that that's a different kind of listening than you, oh. you know, than you than you hear hear a voice from God from on high. Oh, but, yeah. But 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 what but but what have you heard? What do you have you heard back as a reply across the years, or if hearing is even the right verb? I think in the passage you're referring to, especially what I am listening for, as I give my thanks to the earth, I really want to hear whether the earth is grateful for us as, as, as human people. That's really what I'm listening for, is, is can, we have, can we live in such a way that the earth is, is, is grateful for us? And the things that I suppose that I hear back are equal parts of, of affirmation of the beauty and the potential and the imagination and the creativity and love of human people. Um, but I also have to say that I also feel these um, sense of what I would say of loneliness coming back from, from the earth beings that they feel forgotten that here they are bearing all these wonderful gifts for us and we don't even know their names and for the most part we we, we bypass them as if they were just stuff and uh, this is what some philosophers have called species loneliness and I think when that term was first coined they meant that we as humans were lonely for the counsel and the companionship of other species but what I feel is that the other species are lonely for us, for no, right. for our regard mm-hmm. and our appreciation. Oh, so this is wonderful, Robin. Is there anything, anything I haven't asked you, or anything you'd like to add? You have asked such wonderful questions that have really gotten to the heart of it. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, no. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for making the time for this. And um, it's just been delightful to kind of delve into your way of being and seeing and 
your poetry, the poetry of your writing, which is so wonderful. So thank you. Well, thank you. And, and I so appreciate your bringing um, these ideas and all of the ideas that on, bring, on being bring forth. It's a, it's a wonderful conversation. So uh, miigwech for all that. And you know what? There is something I can say in our language. Okay. As, okay. I, as I quite naturally say miigwech to you, <laughs> I would say that, <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the expressions that, that is useful to me is, uh, is that I always include for all of the direction is, is miigwech kinegeko gamijang which is a thank you for everything that we have been given. Hmm. All right. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful last word. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Krista. Okay. Bye, Bye now. Bye.